Chapter 65 of The Golden Bough. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapter 65 Balder and the Mistletoe. The reader may remember that the preceding account of the popular fire festivals of Europe was suggested by the myth of the Norse god Balder, who is said to have been slain by a branch of mistletoe and burnt in a great fire. We have now to inquire how far the customs which have been passed in review help to shed light on the myth. In this inquiry, it may be convenient to begin with the mistletoe, the instrument of Balder's death. From time immemorial, the mistletoe has been the object of superstitious veneration in Europe. It was worshipped by the Druids, as we learn from a famous passage of Pliny. After enumerating the different kinds of mistletoe, he proceeds, quote, In treating of this subject, the admiration in which the mistletoe is held throughout Gaul ought not to pass unnoticed. The Druids, for so they call their wizards, esteem nothing more sacred than the mistletoe and the tree on which it grows provided only that the tree is an oak but apart from this they choose oak woods for their sacred groves and perform no sacred rites without oak leaves so that the very name of druids may be regarded as a greek appellation derived from their worship of the oak for they believe that whatever grows on these trees is sent from heaven and is a sign that the tree has been chosen by the god himself. The mistletoe is very rarely to be met with, but when it is found, they gather it with solemn ceremony. This they do, above all, on the sixth day of the moon, from whence they date the beginnings of their months, of their years, and of their thirty years' cycle, because by the sixth day the moon has plenty of vigor and has not run half its course. After due preparations have been made for a sacrifice and a feast under the tree, they hail it as the universal healer, and bring to the spot two white bulls whose horns have never been bound before. A priest, clad in a white robe, climbs the tree, and with a golden sickle cuts the mistletoe, which is caught in a white cloth. Then they sacrifice the victims, praying that God may make his own gift to prosper with those upon whom he has bestowed it. They believe that a potion prepared from mistletoe will make barren animals to bring forth, and that the plant is a remedy against all poison. In another passage, Pliny tells us that in medicine, the mistletoe which grows on an oak was esteemed the most efficacious, and that its efficacy was by some superstitious people supposed to be increased if the plant was gathered on the first day of the moon without the use of iron, and if, when gathered, it was not allowed to touch the earth, oak mistletoe thus obtained was deemed a cure for epilepsy. Carried about by women, it assisted them to conceive, and it healed ulcers most effectually. If only the sufferer chewed a piece of the plant, and laid another piece on the sore. Yet again, he says that mistletoe was supposed, like vinegar and egg, to be an excellent means of extinguishing a fire. If in these later passages Pliny refers, as he apparently does, 
to the beliefs current among his contemporaries in Italy, it will follow that the Druids and the Italians were to some extent agreed as to the valuable properties possessed by mistletoe which grows on an oak. Both of them deemed it an effectual remedy for a number of ailments, and both of them ascribed to it a quickening virtue. The Druids, believing that a potion prepared from mistletoe would fertilize barren cattle, and the Italians, holding that a piece of mistletoe carried about by a woman would help her to conceive a child. Further, both peoples thought that if the plant were to exert its medicinal properties, it must be gathered in a certain way and at a certain time. It might not be cut with iron, hence the Druids cut it with gold. It might not touch the earth, hence the Druids caught it in a white cloth. In choosing the time for gathering the plant, both peoples were determined by observation of the moon, only they differed as to the particular day of the moon, the Italians preferring the first, and the Druids the sixth. With these beliefs of the ancient Gauls and Italians as to the wonderful medicinal properties of mistletoe, we may compare the similar beliefs of the modern Aino of Japan. We read that they, quote, like many nations of the northern origin, hold the mistletoe in peculiar veneration. They look upon it as a medicine, good in almost every disease, and it is sometimes taken in food, and at others separately as a decoction. The leaves are used in preference to the berries, the latter being of too sticky a nature for general purpose. But many, too, suppose this plant to have power of making the gardens bear plentifully. When used for this purpose, the leaves are cut up into fine pieces, and after having been prayed over, are sown with the millet and other seeds, a little also being eaten with the food. Barren women have also been known to eat the mistletoe, in order to be made to bear children. That mistletoe which grows upon the willow is supposed to have the greatest efficacy. This is because the willow is looked upon by them as being an especially sacred tree. Close quote. Thus the Aino agree with the Druids in regarding mistletoe as a cure for almost every disease, and they agree with the ancient Italians that applied to women it helps them to bear children. Again, the Druidical notion that the mistletoe was an all-healer or panacea may be compared with the notion entertained by the Walos of Santa Gambia. These people, quote, have veneration for a sort of mistletoe which they call tob. They carry leaves of it on their persons when they go to war as a preservative against wounds, just as if the leaves were real talismans. The French writer who records this practice adds, quote, Is it not very curious that the mistletoe should be in this part of Africa what it was in the superstitions of the Gauls? This prejudice common to the two countries may have the same origin. Blacks and whites will doubtless have seen, each of them for themselves, something supernatural in a plant which grows and flourishes without having roots in the earth. May they not have believed, in fact, that it was a plant fallen from the sky, a gift of the divinity? This suggestion as to the origin of the superstition is strongly confirmed by the druidical belief, reported by Pliny, 
that whatever grew on an oak was sent from heaven and was a sign that the tree had been chosen by the god himself such a belief explains why the druids cut the mistletoe not with a common knife but with a golden sickle and why when cut it was not suffered to touch the earth probably they thought that the celestial plant would have been profaned and its marvellous virtue lost by contact with the ground with the ritual observed by the druids in cutting the mistletoe we may compare the ritual which in cambodia is prescribed in a similar case they say that when you see an orchid growing as a parasite on a tamarind tree you should dress in white take a new earthenware pot then climb the tree at noon break off the plant put it in the pot and let the pot fall to the ground after that you make in the pot a decoction which confers the gift of invulnerability thus just as in africa the leaves of one parasitic plant are supposed to render the wearer invulnerable so in cambodia a decoction made from another parasitic plant is considered to render the same service to such as make use of it whether by drinking or washing we may conjecture that in both places the notion of invulnerability is suggested by the position of the plant which occupying a place of comparative security above the ground appears to promise to its fortunate possessor a similar security from some of the ills that beset the life of man on earth we have already met with examples of the store which the primitive mind sets on such vantage grounds whatever may be the origin of these beliefs and practices concerning the mistletoe certain it is that some of them have their analogies in the folklore of modern european peasants for example it is laid down as a rule in various parts of europe that mistletoe may not be cut in the ordinary way but must be shot or knocked down with stones from the tree on which it is growing thus in the swiss canton of Aargau, quote, all parasitic plants are esteemed in a certain sense holy by the country folk but most particularly so the mistletoe growing on an oak they ascribe great powers to it but shrink from cutting it off in the usual manner instead of that they procure it in the following manner when the sun is in sagittarius and the moon is on the wane on the first third or fourth day before the new moon one ought to shoot down with an arrow the mistletoe of an oak and to catch it with the left hand as it falls such mistletoe is a remedy for every ailment of children here among the swiss peasants as among the druids of old special virtue is ascribed to mistletoe which grows on an oak it may not be cut in the usual way it must be caught as it falls to the ground and it is esteemed a panacea for all diseases at least of children in sweden also it is a popular superstition that if mistletoe is to possess its peculiar virtue it must either be shot down out of the oak or knocked down with stones similarly quote, so late as the early part of the nineteenth century people in wales believed that for the mistletoe to have any power it must be shot or struck down with stones off the tree where it grew Close quote. again in respect of the healing virtues of mistletoe 
the opinion of modern peasants and even of the learned has to some extent agreed with that of the ancients the druids appear to have called the plant or perhaps the oak on which it grew the all healer and all healer is said to be still a name of the mistletoe in modern celtic speech of brittany wales ireland and scotland on st john's morning or midsummer morning peasants of piedmont and lombardy go out to search the oak leaves for the oil of st john which is supposed to heal all wounds made with cutting instruments originally perhaps the oil of st john was simply the mistletoe or a decoction made from it for in holstein the mistletoe especially oak mistletoe is still regarded as a panacea for green wounds and as a sure charm to secure success in hunting and at la Quanet, in the south of france the old druidical belief in the mistletoe as an antidote to all poisons still survives among the peasantry they apply the plant to the stomach of the sufferer or give him a decoction of it to drink again the ancient belief that mistletoe is a cure for epilepsy has survived in modern times not only among the ignorant but among the learned thus in sweden persons afflicted with the falling sickness think they can ward off attacks of the malady by carrying about with them a knife which has a handle of oak mistletoe and in germany for a similar purpose pieces of mistletoe used to be hung round the necks of children in the french province of bourbonnay a popular remedy for epilepsy is a decoction of mistletoe which has been gathered on an oak on st john's day and boiled with rye flour so at botsford in lincolnshire a decoction of mistletoe is supposed to be a palliative for this terrible disease indeed mistletoe was recommended as a remedy for the falling sickness by high medical authorities in england and holland down to the eighteenth century however the opinion of the medical profession as to the curative virtues of mistletoe has undergone a radical alteration whereas the druids thought that mistletoe cured everything modern doctors appear to think that it cures nothing if they are right we must conclude that the ancient and widespread faith in the medicinal virtue of mistletoe is a pure superstition based on nothing better than the fanciful inferences which ignorance has drawn from the parasitic nature of the plant its position high up on the branch of a tree seeming to protect it from the dangers to which plants and animals are subject on the surface of the ground from this point of view we can perhaps understand why mistletoe has so long and so persistently been prescribed as a cure for the falling sickness as mistletoe cannot fall to the ground because it is rooted on the branch of a tree high above the earth it seems to follow as a necessary consequence that an epileptic patient cannot possibly fall down in a fit so long as he carries a piece of mistletoe in his pocket or a decoction of mistletoe in his stomach such a train of reasoning would probably be regarded even now as cogent by a large portion of the human species again the ancient italian opinion that mistletoe extinguishes fire appears to be shared by swedish peasants who hang up branches of oak mistletoe on the ceilings of their rooms as a protection against harm in general and conflagration in particular a hint 
as to the way in which mistletoe comes to be possessed of this property is furnished by the epithet thunder besom which people of the Aragau canton in switzerland apply to the plant for a thunder besom is a shaggy bushy excrescence on branches of trees which is popularly believed to be produced by a flash of lightning hence in bohemia a thunder besom burnt in the fire protects the house against being struck by a thunderbolt being itself a product of lightning it naturally serves on homeopathic principles as a protection against lightning in fact as a kind of lightning conductor hence the fire which mistletoe in sweden is designed especially to avert from houses may be fire kindled by lightning though no doubt the plant is equally effective against conflagration in general again mistletoe acts as a master key as well as a lightning conductor for it is said to open all locks but perhaps the most precious of all the virtues of mistletoe is that it affords efficient protection against sorcery and witchcraft that no doubt is the reason why in austria a twig of mistletoe is laid on the threshold as a preventative of nightmare and it may be the reason why in the north of england they say that if you wish your dairy to thrive you should give your bunch of mistletoe to the first cow that calves after new year's day for it is well known that nothing is so fatal to milk and butter as witchcraft similarly in wales for the sake of ensuring good luck to the dairy people used to give a branch of mistletoe to the first cow that gave birth to a calf after the first hour of the new year in the rural districts of wales where mistletoe abounded there was always a profusion of it in the farmhouses when mistletoe was scarce welsh farmers used to say no mistletoe no luck but if there was a fine crop of mistletoe they expected a fine crop of corn in sweden mistletoe was diligently sought after on st john's eve the people quote, believing it to be in a high degree possessed of mystic qualities and that if a sprig of it be attached to the ceiling of the dwelling-house the horse's stall or the cow's crib the troll will then be powerless to injure either man or beast with regard to the time when the mistletoe should be gathered opinions have varied the druids gathered it above all on the sixth day of the moon the ancient italians apparently on the first day of the moon in modern times some have preferred the full moon of march and others the waning moon of winter when the sun is in sagittarius but the favorite time would seem to be midsummer eve or midsummer day we have seen that both in france and sweden special virtues are ascribed to mistletoe gathered in midsummer the rule in sweden is that quote, mistletoe must be cut on the night of midsummer eve when sun and moon stand in the sign of their night Close quote. again in wales it was believed that a sprig of mistletoe gathered on st john's eve or midsummer eve or at any time before the berries appeared would induce dreams of omen both good and bad if it were placed under the pillow of the sleeper thus mistletoe is one of the many plants whose magical or medicinal virtues 
are believed to culminate with the culmination of the sun on the longest day of the year. Hence, it seems reasonable to conjecture that in the eyes of the Druids also, who revered the plant so highly, the sacred mistletoe may have acquired a double portion of its mystic qualities at the solstice of June, and that accordingly they may have regularly cut it with solemn ceremony on Midsummer Eve. Be that as it may, certain it is that the mistletoe, the instrument of Baldur's death, has been regularly gathered for the sake of its mystic qualities on Midsummer Eve in Scandinavia, Baldur's home. The plant is found commonly growing on pear trees, oaks, and other trees in thick, damp woods throughout the more temperate parts of Sweden. Thus, one of the two main incidents of Baldur's myth is reproduced in the great Midsummer Festival of Scandinavia. But the other main incident of the myth, the burning of Baldur's body on a pyre, has also its counterpart in the bonfires which still blaze, or blazed till lately, in Denmark, Norway, and Sweden on Midsummer Eve. It does not appear, indeed, that any effigy is burned in these bonfires, but the burning of an effigy is a feature which might easily drop out after its meaning was forgotten, and the name of Baldur's Bale Fires, or Baldur's Balar, by which these Midsummer Fires were formerly known in Sweden, puts their connection with Baldur beyond the reach of doubt, and makes it probable that in former times either a living representative or an effigy of Baldur was annually burned in them. Midsummer was the season sacred to Baldur, and the Swedish poet Tejner, in placing the burning of Baldur at Midsummer, may very well have followed an old tradition that the summer solstice was the time when the good God came to his untimely end. Thus it has been shown that the leading incidents of the Baldur myth have their counterparts in those fire festivals of our European peasantry, which undoubtedly date from a time long prior to the introduction of Christianity. The pretense of throwing the victim chosen by lot into the Beltane fire, and the similar treatment of the man, the future green wolf, at the midsummer bonfire in Normandy, may naturally be interpreted as traces of an older custom of actually burning human beings on these occasions, and the green dress of the green wolf, coupled with the leafy envelope of the young fellow who trod out in the midsummer fire at Moosheim, seems to hint that the persons who perished at these festivals did so in the character of tree spirits or deities of vegetation. From all this, we may reasonably infer that in the Balder myth on the one hand, and the fire festivals and custom of gathering mistletoe on the other hand, we have, as it were, the two broken and dissevered halves of an original whole. In other words, we may assume, with some degree of probability, that the myth of Baldur's death was not merely a myth, that is, a description of physical phenomena in imagery borrowed from human life, but that it was, at the same time, the story which people told to explain why they annually burned a human representative of the god and cut the mistletoe with solemn ceremony. If I am right, the story of Baldur's tragic end formed, so to say, the text of the sacred drama which was acted year by year as a magical rite to cause the sun to shine, trees to grow, crops to thrive, and to guard man and beast 
from the baleful arts of fairies and trolls, of witches and warlocks. The tale belonged, in short, to that class of nature myths which are meant to be supplemented by ritual, here as so often myths stood to magic in the relation of theory to practice. But if the victims, the human balders, who died by fire, whether in spring or at midsummer, were put to death as living embodiments of tree spirits or deities of vegetation, it would seem that Balder himself must have been a tree spirit or deity of vegetation. It becomes desirable, therefore, to determine, if we can, the particular kind of tree or trees of which a personal representative was burned at the fire festival. For we may be quite sure that it was not as a representative of vegetation in general that the victims suffered death, the idea of vegetation in general is too abstract to be primitive. Most probably, the victim at first represented a particular kind of sacred tree. But of all European trees, none has such claims as the oak to be considered as preeminently the sacred tree of the Aryans. We have seen that its worship is attested for all the great branches of the Aryan stock in Europe. Hence we may certainly conclude that the tree was venerated by the Aryans in common before the dispersion, and that their primitive home must have lain in the land which was clothed with forests of oak. Now, considering the primitive character and remarkable similarity of the fire festivals observed by all the branches of the Aryan race in Europe, we may infer that these festivals form part of the common stock of religious observances which the various people carried with them in their wanderings from their old home. But, if I am right, an essential feature of those primitive fire festivals was the burning of a man who represented the tree spirit. In view, then, of the place occupied by the oak in the religion of the Aryans, the presumption is that the tree so represented at the fire festivals must originally have been the oak. So far as the Celts and Lithuanians are concerned, this conclusion will perhaps hardly be contested. But both for them and for the Germans, it is confirmed by a remarkable piece of religious conservatism. The most primitive method known to man of producing fire is by rubbing two pieces of wood against each other till they ignite. And we have seen that this method is still used in Europe for kindling sacred fires such as the need fire and that most probably it was formerly resorted to at all the fire festivals under discussion. Now it is sometimes required that the need fire, or other sacred fire, should be made by the friction of a particular kind of wood, and when the kind of wood is prescribed, whether among Celts, Germans, or Slavs, that wood appears to be generally the oak. But if the sacred fire was regularly kindled by the friction of oak wood, we may infer that originally the fire was also fed with the same material. In point of fact, it appears that the perpetual fire of Vesta at Rome was fed with oak wood, and that oak wood was the fuel consumed in the perpetual fire which burned under the sacred oak at the great Lithuanian sanctuary of Romov. Further, that oak wood was formerly the fuel burned in the midsummer fires may perhaps be inferred from the custom said to be still observed by peasants in many mountain districts of Germany, 
of making up the cottage fire on midsummer day with a heavy block of oak wood the block is so arranged that it smoulders slowly and is not finally reduced to charcoal to the expiry of a year then upon next midsummer day the charred embers of the old log are removed to make room for the new one and are mixed with the seed corn or scattered about the garden this is believed to guard the food cooked on the hearth from witchcraft to preserve the luck of the house to promote the growth of the crops and to keep them from blight and vermin thus the custom is almost exactly parallel to that of the yule log which in parts of germany france england serbia and other slavonic lands was commonly of oak wood the general conclusion is that at those periodic or occasional ceremonies the ancient aryans both kindled and fed the fire with the sacred oak wood but if at these solemn rites the fire was regularly made of oak wood it follows that any man who was burned in it as a personification of the tree spirit could have represented no tree but the oak the sacred oak was thus burned in duplicate the wood of the tree was consumed in the fire and along with it was consumed a living man as a personification of the oak spirit the conclusion thus drawn for the european aryans in general is confirmed in its special application to the scandinavians by the relation in which amongst them the mistletoe appears to have stood to the burning of the victim in the midsummer fire we have seen that among scandinavians it has been customary to gather the mistletoe at midsummer but so far as appears on the face of this custom there is nothing to connect it with the midsummer fires in which human victims or effigies of them were burned even if the fire as seems probable was originally always made with oak wood why should it have been necessary to pull the mistletoe the last link between the midsummer customs of gathering the mistletoe and lighting the bonfires is supplied by balder's myth which can hardly be disjoined from the customs in question the myth suggests that the vital connection may once have been believed to subsist between the mistletoe and the human representative of the oak who was burned in the fire according to the myth balder could be killed by nothing in heaven or earth except the mistletoe and so long as the mistletoe remained on the oak he was not only immortal but invulnerable now if we suppose that balder was the oak the origin of the myth becomes intelligible the mistletoe was viewed as the seed of life of the oak and so long as it was uninjured nothing could kill or even wound the oak the conception of the mistletoe as the seed of life of the oak would naturally be suggested to primitive people by the observation that while the oak is deciduous the mistletoe which grows on it is evergreen in winter the sight of its fresh foliage among the bare branches must have been hailed by the worshippers of the tree as a sign that the divine life which had ceased to animate the branches yet survived in the mistletoe as the heart of a sleeper still beats when his body is motionless hence when the god had to be killed when the sacred tree had to be burnt it was necessary to begin by breaking off the mistletoe for so long as the mistletoe remained intact the oak so people might think was invulnerable 
all the blows of their knives and axes would glance harmless from its surface but once tear from the oak its sacred heart the mistletoe and the tree nodded to its fall and when in later times the spirit of the oak came to be represented by a living man it was logically necessary to suppose that like the tree he personated he could neither be killed nor wounded so long as the mistletoe remained uninjured the pulling of the mistletoe was thus at once the signal and the cause of his death on this view the invulnerable balder is neither more nor less than a personification of the mistletoe-bearing oak the interpretation is confirmed by what seems to have been an ancient italian belief that the mistletoe can be destroyed neither by fire nor water for if the parasite is thus deemed indestructible it might easily be supposed to communicate its own indestructibility to the tree on which it grows so long as the two remain in conjunction or to put the same idea in mythical form we might tell how the kindly god of the oak had its life securely deposited in the imperishable mistletoe which grew among its branches how accordingly so long as the mistletoe kept its place there the deity himself remained invulnerable and how at last a cunning foe let into the secret of the god's invulnerability tore the mistletoe from the oak thereby killing the oak god and afterwards burning his body in a fire which could have made no impression on him so long as the incombustible parasite retained its seat among the boughs but since the idea of a being whose life is thus in a sense outside himself must be strange to many readers and has indeed not yet been recognized in its full bearing on primitive superstition it will be worth while to illustrate it by examples drawn both from story and custom the result will be to show that in assuming this idea as the explanation of balder's relation to the mistletoe i assume a principle which is deeply engraved on the mind of primitive man End of chapter sixty five